0: Welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Somoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko
1: Somoji. Welcome to My Favorite Coffee Story. We are so happy you've joined us. Listeners, welcome all around the world. And we have another wonderful show together with you today. And we're talking about good food and good coffee stories with an amazing guest, Bruce Friedrich. And before I introduce Bruce, I always share what's going on with the farm at This is our Kona Farm moment. And, of course, since we've been talking about the amazing rains that we've been having here right in Kona, uh, it's really brought the trees to life. And the trees are developing wonderful coffee berries. And we'll start picking probably in September. But I can really tell this is going to be a great harvest. And, of course, we've been taking care of the trees in a good way. We finished our pruning And we also have been good about taking care of the borer beetle that we've shared a little bit on the show, how this is this tiny beetle that's the size of a sesame seed. And if we don't keep on top of things, then we're not a good citizen here in the Kona Coffee community. So we don't spray anything on the trees, but we use an organic fungus to help the trees sort of fend off this boar beetle, and I actually think it's working, and it's really helping that all the farmers are pulling together and making sure that we tend to this, so that's a little bit what's going on in the farm. On the big island, there's a fantastic event going on right now called the Ka'u Coffee Festival. April 21st through May 6th, we have this amazing coffee festival. It's on the other side of the island, it's all about coffee, of course, how it grows in lava rock, the roasting of coffee, um, hula, um, a lot about agriculture. And so that's been wonderful. And our next guest is going to be talking a little bit about Kau Coffee Festival on May, thir- May 8th. Pardon me. But today we're talking about good food and good coffee stories with our wonderful guest, Bruce Friedrich, who's joining us from Washington, D.C. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Good Food Institute. And we are so delighted you've joined us, Bruce. Thank you so much for being with us on My Favorite Coffee Story today.
2: I am thrilled to be on the show, Aniko. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a lot of fun.
1: Oh, it's so fun. And, you know, talking about the future of food and food innovation is something that we're all so interested in. And what you're working on there at the Good Food Institute is, is truly Fantastic. And we are really thrilled to talk about that today. So we would love to share how you got involved in kind of in your early days of your career, your interests in animal advocacy and I know you attended the college there in Iowa Grinnell College in 1987 and you joined a group called Poverty Action Now and we would love to hear even how you were inspired by the phrase the Socratic fa- phrase the unexamined life is not worth living and how you became involved in Poverty Action Now please share with us Bruce
2: uh, absolutely. Thank you very much for asking. Um, so yeah, I, I showed up at, at college in 1987, and I considered myself to be, you know, kind of Joe radical, which didn't require much. If you grew up in Oklahoma, you were kind of Joe radical if you could name your senators. That was uh, that was pretty politically astute for an Oklahoma uh, high school student. And I got to college, and was really taken by the amount of political activity happening on this campus in the cornfields of Iowa. And as somebody who had um, previously become very aware um, and very concerned about global poverty. So this was the mid 1980s, the famine in Ethiopia uh, just before the famine in Somalia um, and had become politically active in, in high school as a, sort of my response, I thought political action was the way that we could reallocate resources toward helping to save some of the tens of millions of people who are dying from starvation-related causes every year. Um, I got to college, and I I joined a group called Poverty Action Now. We organized soup kitchen trips on the weekends. We organized every semester we would have um, a fast, um, and we would sign students up to not eat for the day and then worked with the dining hall to donate the money that they then did not have to spend on food to donate that money to Oxfam International. It was something that Oxfam organized on campuses around the country um, in the mid-'80s and into the early-'90s, I think. And so I was doing that, and at the same time, the person who was organizing the soup kitchen trips gave me a book called Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay, And that book just looks at how colossally broken the entire global food system is. Um, And with the advent of free trade, I mean, this is still when there were a fair number of protectionist measures in place and food didn't flow quite as freely across borders as it does now. Um, With the advent of free trade, with the World Bank and IMF programs from the early 90s that Instituted these structural adjustment programs that moved developing world economies toward creating feed crops to raise money rather than sustenance crops to feed their populations. Um, There's just a lot that's bad about the way that food is produced. And one of the things that's really bad about the way that food is produced is just the degree to which for example, the rainforest is being chopped down in South America to grow soy, to feed the farm animals. Um, kind of throughout the developing world, this shift away from subsistence agriculture and toward production agriculture has adversely impacted the global poor. And a big part of that is either um, converting land to uh, livestock, to pasture for livestock, or converting land to grow feed crops to be fed to farm animals, generally farm animals in the developed world rather than the developing world. So it's sort of this cruel, neo-colonial food distribution system that uh, boils down to the consumption of, of animals um, in the developing world at the expense of people who are starving um, in the, in the developing world. I think I just misspoke, but, um, consuming animals in the developed world at the expense of people who are starving in the developing world.
1: Well, and Bruce, that really was an interesting and inspiring discovery to read that book, Diet for a Small Planet. And coming from Oklahoma and then venturing to Iowa, That must have been a big transition for you, I can imagine, and how you were inspired by that. So it sounds like you really took a close look at how you could make a positive difference in this whole process. And that is what's so inspiring and encouraging. Tell us, please, about some of your favorite classes while you were at university and some of your favorite mentors, please.
2: Um, well, my you know, I mean, my, my key mentor in college was my um, so I, I double majored in economics and English, um, and my primary mentor was a guy who studied John Maynard Keynes. His name is Brad Bateman, and he's an economics professor. I think he's actually now the dean um, of the entire school, Denison University, I believe. But he was the, the he was a, an economics professor at Grinnell College from the mid-80s to, I think, the early 2000s. And he was very interested in Keynesian economic theory um, and convinced me to be very interested in, in Keynesian economic theory, and then also really interested in sort of what it means to be an insider versus what it means to be an outsider. So who in society is prioritized and who globally is prioritized and who is not prioritized. And I ended up um, really taking seriously the idea that especially macroeconomics had tremendous power to both help people and harm people. And the folks at the Chicago School of Economics were just about using economic ideology as a weapon, both against the global poor and against the domestic poor. And it was, I mean, I'm, you know, so this is sort of what uh, Professor Bateman taught me. And then there was a sort of, sort of offshoot of this concept that had to do not even with microeconomics, but sort of at a societal level, who are the people who society listens to and who are the people that society doesn't listen to. So I had kind of these competing things in mind, like looking at the the macroeconomics globally, which found if you lived in one of the developed world countries, one of the first world countries, pretty much you could do just about whatever you wanted, especially if you were in sort of the middle or upper upper classes. Whereas if you lived in one of the, you know, if you lived in Sub-Saharan Africa, if you lived in Central America, especially Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, one of the countries that was sort of roiled in civil war in the mid 1980s, Uh, no matter what you did, life wasn't going to work out for you. So as somebody who was a Roman Catholic and took very seriously, and still am a Roman Catholic, as a Roman Catholic, you know, thinking about the one time that Jesus talks about what it means to be a Christian, it's not, did you believe in Jesus? You know, did you say some prayer? Did you go to Mass? Like the one thing he says is, the people who, but what it means to believe in me is that you do the work that I do. And what that means is that if somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody's homeless, you provide shelter. If somebody's naked, you give them clothes. If someone is sick or in prison, you visit them. Um, Whether you're talking domestically, there are haves and there are have-nots, and politics can help or harm, especially macroeconomics. Um, And then if you're talking globally, really political theory matters, economic theory matters. um, And there's one side of economic theory that's trying to help. It's the Keynesian side, um, and there's another side that is using economic theory to entrench the status quo. And that's sort of the battle um, that, uh, that Professor Bateman sort of enlisted me in. I'm not sure he would have framed it quite that way. If he were to listen to this podcast, it's possible he'd be horrified. Uh, yeah. But um, that had a huge, huge impact on, on sort of my thinking over time on um, that. And then the, the pastor of the church that I attended, a guy named Bud Dixon, um, who was helping me to sort of uh, see my faith in a significantly more radical, which is to say going to the root sort of way that, that prioritizes living a life, focused on making the world a better place and casting my lot with the oppressed against the oppressor on the side of mercy and compassion against misery and cruelty.
1: And thank you for sharing that, Bruce. And you you definitely have, and it is so inspiring to all of us to hear how these mentors and Professor Bateman really made a difference in your life and how then you went on to Georgetown Law School and Johns Hopkins graduate program in education and London School of Economics and... Uh, and you even received a 4.0 at Johns Hopkins and and you you also became part you were elected into the Animal Rights Hall of Fame in 2004 and even named as one of the 50 most powerful men under 38 in 2003 You've definitely done so much good in this life, and we really appreciate it. I was curious, Bruce, during those university days, did you have some good coffee stories that either discussions over a good cup of coffee or go to your favorite cafe there on campus you'd like to share with us?
2: Well, Aniko, as you know, as you and I discussed a little bit uh, beforehand, coffee has been, a central part. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think I, I went without coffee for a month once, but, um, pretty much since I was about 14, uh, coffee has been essential to my intellectual life. So, and I suppose, uh, I suppose I would have gotten the degrees even if coffee hadn't existed, but, um, coffee was a, was a, a central fuel, Um, of many a late night uh, study session and many an early morning study session and uh, got me through my exams. And obviously when you're uh, certainly in in late high school, for me, as somebody who was very politically active um, and just beginning to take uh, gospel study seriously, just beginning to learn about the various philosophers and the divergent opinions in philosophy and Consequently, as somebody who was, who was having deep philosophical and political discussions with, in Oklahoma, an awful lot of people who disagreed with where I was going, um, a lot of that was fueled by Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Um, I really took seriously their slogan because life is too good for bad coffee, uh, <laughs> in the, uh, late 80s and into the 1990s. Then I ran a homeless shelter and a soup kitchen. Uh, for six years in inner city, Washington, D.C., the shelter was also a, a sanctuary shelter, which is to say we provided um, and they still provide at the shelter that I ran. Um, we pr- provided for homeless families, oftentimes undocumented homeless families. And then we also ran also ran the largest soup kitchen in Washington, D.C. And uh, at the shelter, coffee was. You know, the coffee was on. We had one of those industrial size. Um, like it's not even a pot, right? It's like a coffee urn uh, yes. that was free flowing and always. And then a, a key part of the soup kitchen, I mean, we had soup and various other things, but it was also unlimited coffee, which was critically important, especially um, during some of the, the harsh uh, early 1990s winters in Washington, D.C., so, I'm not thinking of a, a specific time when I was sitting around with people drinking coffee and having conversations, but I think probably just about every time I was sitting around having co- conversations, it was over coffee.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. And, Bruce, I just love how from 1990 to 1996, you would go with the van and you would offer sandwiches and coffee to various parts. There in Washington, D.C., and uh, share so much goodness just going out there and helping others, which is really appreciated. So, thank you for doing all that. Before we go to break, Bruce, I'd love to quickly ask you and for our listeners, how then you became involved with the Good Food Institute after you ran the shelter?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to just step back for a second because, I mean, one thing about coffee that I really like, and that's true whether it's Dunkin' Donuts coffee or it's coffee out of an urn or it's coffee from Starbucks. Well, obviously there's a bit of a Starbucks controversy at the moment, which I was, well, anyway, we can talk about that in a minute if you want to, but (laughs) one of the sort of philosophies of the Catholic worker, um, which is a movement started by Dorothy Day in the 1930s, Dorothy Day, as just sort of an aside, She's likely to be canonized. When Pope Francis was here, he gave a, a presentation to the joint session of Congress, and he canonized um, a South American saint at the basilica. And in both cases, he had sort of he had three people who he talked about. Um, and to the joint session of Congress, he talked about Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day, and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, when he did the canonization at the basilica. I can't remember who the other two people were he talked about, but the one overlap was this woman, Dorothy Day, and she started something called The Catholic Worker um, in New York City in the early 1930s, and it was focused on Matthew 25, so feed the hungry, house the homeless, visit the sick and imprisoned, clothe the naked. And The Catholic Worker is based in coffee, and one of the things that Dorothy Day writes about um, in her collected writings, which is called By Little and By Little, she talks about things that, that equalize or normalize, you know, whether you are Bill Gates or you are a homeless person on the street, if you're drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee or Starbucks coffee or you know, coffee from a gas station, like coffee is one of the things that is the same for everybody. And if you're yes. cold, the experience of drinking coffee has basically the same effect on you. Um, Dorothy brilliant writer. She like sort of frames that in a way that that is a lot better than what I just said, but that is like a part of the ethos of the Catholic worker. And there are like 125 of these houses. And that's what I was doing in the early nineties. So we would not just, I mean, the idea wasn't we drive around the streets in the cold and give people sandwiches and coffee The idea was we drive around the streets and we share sandwiches and coffee with people. So we would go to the areas, to the heating grates where there would be 75 homeless people congregated, and we would park and we would pull out our box of sandwiches and we would pull out the coffee urn and we would eat sandwiches and talk with people and we would share coffee together. Because one of the things that, that the great homeless advocate Mitch Snyder said about he so said it's worse when you walk by somebody on the street and they're and they're panhandling. At least engage with them, even if you're not going to give them money, because yes. it adds insult to injury to not even sort of recognize their humanity. Yes. Um, and Mitch's philosophy was that even more important than feeding and sheltering, et cetera, is being communal with. So, um, spent a lot of time in those six years being communal with people who were having a very different experience of the world from me um, over coffee. So that's, uh, that's a coffee story.
1: Oh, that's an amazing coffee story, Bruce. And thank you for sharing how important it is to be communal and to really reach out. And we can't wait to talk with you, Bruce, a little bit more about how you got involved with the Good Food Institute. And thank you for sharing about your early days and about your coffee stories in between everything. But right after the break, Please join us, listeners. We'll talk more with Bruce Friedrich, co-founder and executive director of the Good Food Institute in Washington, D.C. Please join us.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Kona Farm where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Kona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anicona.com and get your Anicona Story coffee special today. And protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show.
1: Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're talking about... Good Food and Good Coffee Stories with Bruce Friedrich. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Good Food Institute in Washington, D.C., and it's just so exciting to talk about the future of food with Bruce. We're going to ask you, please, Bruce, how you got involved with the Good Food Institute. Sure.
2: So I was actually doing animal protection work. I was policy director for an animal protection organization called Farm Sanctuary, uh, for about five years, and I was running Farm sanctuaries, legislative efforts, um, their litigation efforts, their regulatory efforts, so basically just sort of standard policy director stuff. But um, I have been very interested in our broken food system for more than 30 years, since the mid-1980s, and a part of what I have attempted to do is educate people about the degree to which the food system is broken and encourage people to make different choices. And it's really seemed to me that that is not working very well. In 2017, per capita meat consumption was the highest it's ever been. uh, And per capita factory farmed meat consumption was the highest it's ever been. 2018 is looking like it's going to be even higher. And a group of us who have been sort of strategizing over time how we turn the tide on that. We were looking at companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and the company that's now called Just. It used to be called Hampton Creek. And we were looking at what's happened with soy milk and almond milk and just thinking, you know, those folks are really on to something. So 20 years ago, soy milk and almond milk – you couldn't find them in grocery stores. You couldn't find them in coffee shops. If you tracked down a dusty carton of soy milk in sort of the nether regions of your local health food store, it oftentimes didn't taste very good. In a fairly short matter, period of time, in less than two decades, soy milk and almond milk have gone from essentially 0% of the market to greater than 10% of the market. So wow. our thought was, could we do that? with plant-based meat alternatives in the same way they did that with plant-based milk alternatives. And that's the goal of companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and Hampton Creek is to say 100% of people in society, when they're thinking about what they're going to eat, they care about the price, they care about the taste, they care about convenience. Right. Can we create products that compete with the products of industrial animal agriculture on the basis of how it tastes and how much it costs and convenience. And uh, so the brainstorm is if we can do that, we can sort of remove ethics from the table altogether um, and shift society away from the consumption of factory farm products and toward plant-based alternatives. And then cellular agriculture alternatives is something else we work on.
1: Impossible, um, meat or Impossible Burgers are found here at the Kona Safeway, and they're truly delicious. They're right in the meat department, and they do a super job, and even their Impossible um, meat strips are fantastic in fajitas and burritos, and so it's, it's really, I think it's hitting on taste and convenience and possibly getting there on price, so that's pretty exciting, how would you describe uh, cellular agriculture, Bruce?
2: Well, there are two versions of cellular agriculture. There are two, two things that happen with cellular agriculture. Uh, the first one is clean meat. And clean meat is basically, it's real meat, but it's grown directly from the animal's cells. So right now what happens is you grow massive amounts of crops, you feed those crops to animals, and the animal's muscles, you know, so their cells multiply and grow. But it's a horribly inefficient process. The most inefficient meat is chicken, and it takes nine calories in the form of corn, soy, oats, wheat, whatever you're turning into animal feed. It takes nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out in the form of that animal's flesh. About half of those calories go into creating parts of the animal that we don't eat, um, and Mm -hmm. then the rest of those calories go into just allowing the animal— to lead her or his life. So just like you and I eat thousands of calories a day and we don't gain weight. Um, Farm animals, obviously they eat thousands of calories a day and they gain weight until they're sent to slaughter, but they are just inefficient at caloric conversion. So probably most of your listeners are very concerned about food waste and we should be concerned about food waste, but it's worth recognizing that about 40% of everything, all of the food that's produced is thrown away. So it's 40% food waste. Just the physiological relationship of feeding a chicken, nine calories in for one calorie out, it's literally 800% food waste. So it's 20 times as bad. Just the physiology of the chicken is 20 times as bad. With clean meat, you're feeding the cells directly. So you're not growing any parts of the animal that are not going to be consumed and you're not putting any energy, any of the, 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 uh, nutrients for the cells, you're not putting any of that into respiration or, you know, all of the calories that the animals burn leading their lives. There's no animal to burn those calories. So you're directly creating real meat, but in a far more efficient way. It it creates 95% less climate change, uses 90% less water, uses 99% less land. And because it's freeing up all of that land, it actually ends up being net energy positive because all of the freed up land can be used to produce energy and it can be used to produce energy in a renewable way, which multiplies the positive climate impact. So clean meat is half of the cellular agriculture equation. Then the other half of the cellular agriculture equation um, is things like dairy proteins and egg proteins and collagen proteins. And the process there is you basically take a yeast and you get the genetic code of whatever the proteins are that you want to produce and just like you can use you know yeast to produce beer instead here you use yeast to churn out the protein the dairy proteins or the egg proteins or the collagen proteins whatever whatever proteins you need so it's a genetically modified yeast that is used to produce those proteins although the proteins themselves are not genetically modified and any of your listeners who eat cheese um, all all non-organic cheese, which is more than 95% of cheese. Um, so more than 95% of cheese con- contains a rennet that is produced this way. Um, 100% of insulin for insulin-dependent de- de- uh, diabetics, 100% of that insulin is produced this way. It's the exact same process. Oh,
1: this this is so interesting and your description really makes a lot of sense and i appreciate and thank you for describing that for us and our listeners and also i can see how that actually is very positive for mm-hmm. the environment and positive for uh, just even the the goodness of the food so thank you for sharing that and i know the good food institute is so involved in The creation of some of this food innovation. Share with us, please, how you drive food innovation.
2: Uh, Sure. So, the Good Food Institute, and people can find out a lot more about it online at gfi.org. So, GFI for Good Food Institute.org. And the sort of one sentence explanation of GFI is that we are a think tank for the plant based meat and clean meat market sectors. That's the super simplified version. We have five programmatic areas. So we have a science and technology department, an innovation department, a policy department, corporate engagement, and international engagement. Um, We have just north of 30 full-time staff at the moment, including half a dozen scientists. The scientists are mostly working on laying the groundwork for the science of plant-based meat and clean meat and to some degree the um acellular products um and plant-based dairy and eggs as well. So where we are now is that the products they taste great if you're a vegetarian. Um, for most non-vegetarians, we haven't gotten to biomimicry. The impossible burger is close, beyond meats beyond burger is close, beyond meats chicken strips are close but they're not quite there, and we also haven't reached the price points. So our science and technology department spends a lot of time just figuring out what are the critical technology elements, whether you're looking at plant-based meat or clean meat, what are the problems we need to solve to get to perfect biomimicry? In the case of plant-based meat with clean meat, you don't need to do that because it's literally the exact same thing, so you're already at perfect biomimicry. But with the plant-based meat, how do we get to perfect biomimicry, um, and how do we do it using a process that allows us as we scale up to get the cost way down.
1: Well, you have an amazing team. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say you have an amazing team all around the world working on that.
2: Um, Yeah, yeah, it's good. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit of what science and technology does. Innovation is focused on a variety of things, including helping startups to be successful. So consulting with startups and helping them with all aspects um, of getting going. We also have a consumer researcher who's helping to figure out how we, how we market plant-based meat and clean meat. Our policy department is focused on a variety of things that have to do with leveling the playing field for the plant-based products and then also figuring out what the path to market is for clean meat because the regulatory path forward is not entirely clear, um, and we're working on that both domestically and internationally. Corporate engagement department, the, the biggest thing the corporate engagement department does is develops ties with and consulting relationships with the really big food companies, including the really big meat companies. When we started at GFI, we were talking about what we were doing as disruptive, and now we talk about what we're doing as transformative, because our goal isn't to put any companies out of business. Our goal is to work with these companies to continue to produce meat, but to do it in a far more efficient and less harmful way. So plant-based meat and clean meat. So we're literally working with the meat industry, working with big food to transition. And then finally, our international engagement department, we have managing directors in Israel, India, and Brazil. And they're mostly focused on replicating the policy work that we're doing and the scientific work that we're doing in those three countries. We're also in the process of hiring somebody in the European Union and in the process of hiring somebody in China.
1: You have an amazing team, Bruce, and what you're working on is extremely exciting. I know that uh, Bill Gates and Richard Branson and even Cargill is uh, interested in this whole space, and it is pretty conceivable that plant-based meat and clean meat might even replace conventional meat by the year 2050, which is pretty interesting and, and so Fascinating to hear about the future of food. As you're leading your team at the Good Food Institute and you do really an amazing job, what would you, how would you describe the vibe there at the Institute and how would you describe your leadership style, please?
2: Well, we put a lot of effort uh, at GFI. So we hire um, exclusively people who are extremely smart and very skilled professionally but we also put a lot of weight into ensuring that people are a good cultural fit for the organization so that people are kind and have a cooperative working style. And one of the things that everybody works at GFI when they first start, uh, they get part of their new employee orientation packet, um, talks about the ethos at GFI being focused on implementing what Daniel Pink talks about in his book, drive uh, it's titled Derive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And he goes in-depth into the science of vocational happiness. And what folks have discovered who do this work, and anybody who reads the Harvard Business Review will, you know, this will sound familiar. But what they discovered is people want autonomy in their work, um, which doesn't make, mean, you know, non-cooperation. It doesn't mean you just make decisions, but it means you have a lot to say about what you're doing on a day-to-day basis and how you're doing it. Uh, number two, people wanna feel that they have the capacity to grow in their work. They don't want you know, just sort of mundane doing the same thing every single day. They want to feel challenged, um, but there's a sweet spot, challenged but not too challenged. And then the third thing is people want to feel like they are doing something that improves the world. At GFI, we are really focused on making sure that everybody who works in the organization um, feels that they are, you know, feels that we are hitting it out of the park on the basis of those three factors. And every six months we do a we do a uh, confidential survey across the organization and the numbers that are coming back are really excellent. Uh, we're very happy um, there's a an online job satisfaction um, anonymous forum called Glassdoor. And, uh, our average rating on Glassdoor is five out of five stars. People are, are super, oh, that's great. uh, psyched to be working at GFI. And there's, uh, there's a, an independent charity watchdog called Animal Charity Evaluators. Um, and Animal Charity Evaluators did a deep dive into the Good Food Institute. And both this year and last year, we were ranked as one of the three most effective charities for people, for philanthropists who want their money to do maximum positive good for, for animal protection. And a part of their analysis is the culture of the organization. So they want to make sure that the work culture is good, because if the work culture is not good, the organization is likely to be unstable. And so they do anonymous interviews with staff at the organizations that they evaluate, including a GFI um, and one of the things that they flagged in particular was that the, that GFI has a has an excellent um, culture for staff. So we were feeling very gratified about that.
1: Definitely, what a great team! And Bruce, we're going to chat a little bit more after the break about your travels and some of your speaking engagements and TED talks. And we've so enjoyed hearing about a little bit more about clean meat and cellular agriculture and. About the vibe and the culture there at Good Food Institute. So please join us, listeners, right after the break.
0: Stimulating talk it
1: gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast.
0: All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Onicona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona story coffee special today. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show.
1: Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're talking about good food and good coffee stories with Bruce Friedrich, who's the co-founder and executive director of the Good Food Institute in Washington, D.C. We're just talking about the future of food, food innovation, clean meat, cellular agriculture. And we were also talking about how it's so important to have a culture at your at your group, at your institute, that also is a reflection of all that you're working on. So thank you for sharing that, Bruce. And we were going to ask you, please, you do a lot of great speaking engagements. Uh, I've li- listened to your interesting TED Talks. And what are some of your upcoming travels, Bruce?
2: Um, you know, I should have been prepared for that question. Okay, here we go.
1: Um
2: so, well, I know you have yeah, the food I'm be conference the, coming up.
1: Um, hello. You have the food conference coming up in, at UC Berkeley.
2: I do. So in June, the effective so there's a movement called effective altruism, which is based in the writings of Peter Singer and a guy named Will McCaskill. There's actually an effective um, altruism institute, uh, the Center for Effective Altruism at Oxford University, and they're having a conference in San Francisco. Uh, June 8th and 9th. And I'm speaking at that. There is something called the future of food technology. It's uh, sort of the big food technology conference um, in New York city, June 19th and 20th. And I'm speaking at that. Uh, GFI is actually co-sponsoring, um, not a hearing before Congress, but um, sort of a forum. And we've got half a dozen members of Congress sponsoring a forum focused on clean meat, um, which I will be co-hosting, I guess, on uh, June 27th. And uh, there's a an organ- nonprofit organization called New Harvest. They're having their conference at MIT uh, July 20th and 21st. And then, yeah, as you noticed, uh, GFI is hosting a conference, which people can find out all about at goodfoodconference.com online. And the Good Food Conference is at UC Berkeley, September 6th and 7th. And we really do have kind of a lineup of uh, all of the key players in plant-based meat and clean meat will be there. The scientists, the policy analysts, the entrepreneurs, the investors, kind of everybody. Everybody's coming together. And if you go to goodfoodconference.com online, you can click on the speakers Um, And you'll see, you know, people like Pat Brown, the guy who founded Impossible Foods, and Josh Tetrick, who founded uh, Just, which used to be Hampton Creek, and just lots of other um, bold-faced names in plant-based meat and clean meat are going to be at this conference. So it's a a great place if people want to get an initiation um, or, you know, sort of a 201 or 301 or 401, of plant-based meat and clean meat, that's the place to do it.
1: Definitely, and of course, uh, if someone's interested, they can find out more at your website, Good Food Institute, just in general, gfi.org. Um, and I, I think you've done some incredible talks across universities as well. I know you've, you've been speaking at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford, and you do a really great job in sharing about I guess it's encouraging, the good news about some of these plant-based foods and cellular agriculture. When people listen, you I think you can really make a great impact because you what you say makes a lot of sense. And have you had any questions that sometimes reflect, sort of can see people's wheels churning in their mind when they're listening and how you're inspiring them to kind of about their choices when it comes to their food choices?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think because most people, like food is a little bit like breathing and sleeping. Um, people don't spend a lot of time thinking about how they might do it differently. Um, I mean, if you're having trouble sleeping or if you've, you know, God forbid you've got asthma or something and you're having trouble breathing, like that, then it takes on, it's very, very important. Just like if you're not able, you know, if you don't have food, it becomes very, very important. But most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about eating in a new way beyond maybe, you know, maybe I could eat less or maybe I could eat slightly more helpfully. So even then, it's sort of eating in the context of you, but not eating as something that has political ramifications, not eating as something that has ramifications for the environment or the global poor or animals. And it's a little bit like turning on a light switch for people. Um, You know, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Most people do not lead particularly examined lives where food is concerned. And for a lot of people, simply pointing that out um, and simply raising the issue of the inefficiencies of the current system, the cruelty of the current system is enough for people to sort of radically transform their lives in that moment, which is a a pretty gratifying experience. And then, you know, a, a step up from that is talking with people about these solutions that they can be a part of. So now when I'm speaking at any of these conferences or I'm speaking at any of these university campuses, generally I'm speaking either to scientists or business school students. And the message is you can be a part of the next agricultural revolution, So right now, a quarter of 1% of meat is plant-based meat. Within 30 years, 100% of meat is not going to come from factory farms, which is where 99% of meat comes from right now. Uh, The people who decide they want to get involved in plant-based meat and clean meat, they are going to be the people who are on the front, front edge of what is about to be a complete and total transformation of the way meat is made. And one can do very well for themselves and for their families going in this direction, but one is also a part of something really awesome and wonderful in terms of how we feed 9.7 billion people by 2050, how we save the climate, how we preserve water, how we stop uh, the sort of devolution of working antibiotics. There's just a lot of good that comes from going in this direction. And it's very, very exciting to go to university campuses and talk about this because it's not something most people in the audience have thought of. Um, and it just makes tremendous sense for people. And it just radically transforms what people are planning on doing with their lives, which is a really, a deeply, uh, gratifying experience.
1: Absolutely. And you've also written a, a book, Bruce, uh, which which is so interesting, called Clean Protein, the revolution that will reshape your body, boost your energy and save our planet. Uh, what is how would you describe projects down the road or any more books you're thinking of or your dreams, Bruce? Well,
2: my big dream. So, I mean, I, I am so. Super bullish on plant based meat and clean meat. And I am so excited that people like Sergey Brin and Bill Gates and Richard Branson are, are on board. I love that Google Ventures and DFJ and Kleiner Perkins, some of the biggest venture capital firms, are on board. I love that companies like Tyson Foods and Cargill are on board. But really, these technologies. These technologies are going to preserve working antibiotics. They're going to help us to feed 9.7 billion people by 2050. They're going to help governments to meet their obligations under the Paris Climate Agreement to keep climate change under 2 degrees Celsius. There are so many things that governments care about that these technologies do that my dream and one of the things that is the key focus of, of GFI's international departments My dream is that governments will get behind these technologies. So in the U.S., we spend $3 billion a year on R&D focused on agriculture. Right now, none of it goes into plant-based meat or clean meat R&D. China spends even more than $3 billion a year on ag research, and they spend tens of billions of dollars on renewable energy research. Our goal is to see the see governments recognize what people like Bill Gates and Richard Branson and Sergey Brin recognize which is that these food technologies have the capacity to be to just do colossal good and to get governments really accelerating these technologies and that's a that's a big focus of our lobbying work in the United States um, and it's a big focus of of, of our work internationally um, and if we see that happen i think we get to you know i was talking about how if plant-based meat is x and clean meat is y X plus Y will equal 100% within 30 years. If we get the Chinese government to put, you know, billions of dollars into this or the U.S. government or the Israeli government or sort of any of these governments that care about these issues to put money into these, we, the, these things, we could accelerate these technologies, have it done in 15 years.
1: And we wish you well with that, Bruce. And that definitely is a dream, setting up research centers by governments. And I know the Good Good Food Institute will definitely have its part in that. So thank you to you and your team for working on that and doing your part to help the world and save the world and, and what we eat and food innovation and helping the process to be more efficient, helping the environment. And also helping poor areas that that need nutrition as well and, in general, good global health. We're so grateful to you, Bruce, and to your entire team there. I was going to ask you uh, one last question before we close, and that is about... How you balance your time, I know that you've talked about how coffee is sort of woven through your life story a bit where when you're when you're on the road and you're traveling to these conferences and have these various speaking engagements, that sometimes you'll stop in to a coffee cafe or a Starbucks. It's a great workspace, you know, good coffee, and you might do that on the road. But how do you balance your time, Bruce?
2: I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the thing that you just nodded at, like coffee, coffee shops are the new town square, like (laughs) coffee shops is where people go and have the discussions that, you know, in days gone by would have happened in town squares. And I think they, and I think they serve such an important purpose. And that's, I think, true of Starbucks and it's true of local, smaller coffee shops as well. Um, in terms of balancing my time, um, Nico, I don't balance my time very well. So um, riding my bicycle is my primary way of getting around town. and so I, I scheduled and and in fact, that's another reason I find myself in Starbucks an awful an awful lot. I could probably write a book about Starbucks bathrooms as, as changing rooms. But um, yeah, I mean, I, mostly, mostly I'm focused on working. Um, but a big part of working is meetings in downtown Washington D.C. and I do ride my bike there and back, and uh, I have to schedule time to change and cool down and that sort of thing. So I do that. Um, but even then, I'm, you know, I'm sitting in the st- sitting in the Starbucks, working on my computer, um, waiting to be cooled down so that I can change clothes and go to my meeting.
1: Well, we appreciate all that you do, and thank you again for joining us today, Bruce, on My Favorite Coffee Story, sharing about the future of food, food innovation, about the Good Food Institute, about all your good work, how you were inspired in early days from your professors, how that book, Diet for a Small Planet, really made a difference in your life, how you've really examined life and making sure that it is worth living and all that you do. So we're so grateful to you. So thank you, Bruce Friedrich, for joining us today. And to our listeners, we've really enjoyed this time together. Thank you so much for joining us as well. And of course, we always offer our Anicona gift at anicona.com. Questions can always be sent to radio at myfavoritecoffeestory.com. Thank you again for joining us today. And as Bruce mentioned earlier, it's all about connecting and sharing stories and sharing our life stories. So thank you again, Bruce, for sharing about your life story and the importance of all the good work you're doing. Thanks. And we look forward to being together next week. In the meantime, we wish you a wonderful aloha.
0: Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week.